Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start this morning with the markets. Jason Trenner, chairman of Strategus Research Partners, who join us here in the studio in New York. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. Let's start with just the, the peculiarity of this particular market. There are rhythms, of course, cycles to the market, especially at the beginning of the year. When you look at, at the market today, at positioning uh, at the beginning of 2017, how different is the beginning of this year from years past? Well, certainly, uh, compared to last year, I don't think it could be more different. As you might remember, the Fed tightened uh, December of 2015, and then it signaled that it was going to tighten four more times. Uh, and that, uh, you know, to use a technical term, uh, freaked out uh, the, uh, the emerging markets and the commodity markets. Uh, and the Fed had to... Uh, freaked out uh, CFA level two. CFA is. level two, I believe. <laughs> I had yeah. to get out my glossary. Uh, but, and you wind up having uh, oil down to $26 before too long and the Fed reserving, uh, you know, um, uh, reverting course. This is very different, of course. I think there's a lot of attendant optimism about the new administration in terms of what it might do uh, with uh, regulatory policy, what it will do with fiscal policy. Trade obviously remains a, a big question mark, but the Fed is, I, I think, content to, uh, wants to normalize rates, but is content to uh, uh, let uh, inflation run a little hot. I'm looking at your most recent note and, and uh, politics right up there at the top. Uh, you note here that uh, 2016, a year in which a well-established political class learned that democracy was its Achilles heel. So you're talking about the Federal Reserve. You've got politics. as well. What's the bigger driver here in 2017 of those two things? Yeah, I, I think central banks, and I think correctly, will, will take a back seat to uh, to fiscal and regulatory and trade policy and and I think it's it's high time uh, certainly the Fed's balance sheet uh, quintupling over the past uh, past eight years uh, certainly I think it was for all the right intentions uh, I think there was a sense in which and I think Japan indicated this last year with its experimentation and negative interest rates that there were limits to what you could expect monetary policy to achieve I, I'm very much of the view that monetary policy, uh, should be used to set the potential uh, for economic growth. It's, it's a very imperfect way of creating economic growth uh, itself. It winds up creating misallocations of capital, which is what we've seen. And I think it's better to have a more balanced policy approach, policy mix in 2017. Jason, do you get the sense that central bankers are reckoning with that tectonic shift? We had the, the minutes out yesterday, as I said, uh, some acknowledgement there of the uncertainty about the potential for, for fiscal policy uh, in the new year. Uh, do, you, do you think that they're coming to terms with the, the changing dynamics uh, between uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy? I think little by little, and I, I don't want to be overly critical of the Fed. It's, it's very kind of de rigueur to, to do that. But I, I think that there's – I think people have realized that uh, central bankers are not some pride of supermen. Uh, they're they're men and women. Uh, they may have PhDs, but um, there, there are limits to what they can actually uh, achieve. And I think it's it's far better, frankly, if we're not discussing from an investment point of view. If we're not discussing the central banks at every minute of every day, mm -hmm. it's, it's you're discussing 
people were actually putting capital at risk. The most important person that works for you right now is not Jason Trennard. It's one D. Clifton. That's right. Who was down in, he must be a little busy, right? Oh, my goodness. Stan is, I mean, uh, he doesn't smoke anymore, but he still probably drinks about a case of Diet Coke a day. So, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's good and good for you. Yeah. Uh, what, what is he, What has he learned about the change in Washington just in the last four weeks? Well, I think he, he's learned that uh, obviously things are going to be very different in terms of the way the administration-to-be is going to be communicating with uh, both the press and market participants. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of the standard um, – you know, the standard uh, modes of communication, uh, avenues of communication are going to be very, very different. Yeah. And so that is going to take some getting used to uh, uh, probably the most among Washington insiders. I, I think the rest of us might not notice much of a difference uh, in, you know, we live in a, a social media world. Uh, I think Washington, uh, at least as far as the interactions between the insiders uh, had been concerned has largely been um, you know left out of that. We sort of go here. John Tucker arbites this for me and David Gura folks. We see Trump treats and we decide if it's news. Yes. Here we are in real time with Jason Trennard. For those of you, we recommend you do not tweet in your car. <laughs> We've had two tweets in the last four minutes and eight minutes, including David Gura. And I've got to bring this up with respect to the uh, senior senator from New York. Yes. Quote, head clown Chuck Schumer. Yes. I'm trying to think of Richard Nixon tweeting that head clown Sam Irvin. That is the second title in the Constitution. Right. Mr. Gura, pick up on this observation of our last two president-elect tweets. You know, it's interesting because we've had so many conversations with uh, with uh, Greg Vallier, among others, about the role that Chuck Schumer will play here. He actually has a very close relationship with Excuse Donald me. Trump. Head clown. Head clown. Chuck Sorry, Schumer. Head clown. Chuck Schumer. Jesus. Remember, one's from Minority Brooklyn, leader one's and head clown. Queens. Yes, there so, you go. Thank right. you. Uh, right. So, you know, I... I, I uh, <laughs> Keep it going, Again, again I'm flummoxed, Tom. I read Keep these and I'm just flummoxed. Okay. I don't know what to say. But... I'm not. Okay, right, Chuck ahead. Schumer, I got on an airplane once, folks, <laughs> and here's a guy who's got every lobbyist in his pocket, and he gets on with a plastic bag from a grocery store and two Probably green in my apples. my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, from Brooklyn or Queens, yeah. or, and they weren't artisanal apples. This guy's down to earth. Whatever I, I anybody's <laughs> politics is, Chuck Schumer is a basic guy. How's he going to adapt to the majority Republicans. Well, I, I have a feeling, though, that I, I think uh, Chuck Schumer also is a pragmatist. I'm certainly not a political expert, but I, but I think, um, you know, politicians are entrepreneurs in their own right. And oh, they, I like they, that. they can, you know, they're, they're political entrepreneurs and, and they'll understand the way the winds are, are blowing. And right now, uh, like it or not, whether you, the winds are blowing in Donald Trump's uh, direction. And so uh, I think that there's going to be more. There may be uh, the positive surprise this year is that there may be more common ground uh, between the Democrats and Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump may have more problems with his own caucus uh, than he, he might have uh, with Democrats. And that, that might seem like a, an outlandish thing to say. Uh, but uh, again, I, I think most politicians, job number one is getting reelected. Uh, and, and certainly uh, this uh, election took a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, it's been easy over the last 8, 12, 16 years to sort of roll your eyes at, at Washington. Not a lot has been happening in Washington. It's been a, a glacial pace. There's been a lot of discord and, and, and infighting. Uh, do you expect Washington to play a more important role to Wall Street after we get through 
the first three agenda items here, the, the, the tax reform, the infrastructure spending, uh, perhaps a, a change to Obamacare. Do you think that Washington is going to remain important throughout this uh, throughout these next four years? Uh, it's a very good question. I certainly um, I, I, I hope so. For, I certainly think for the first year it'll be extraordinarily important. I, I think after that, one hopes that that Washington becomes less important. Uh, and uh, especially, you know, if you're a, a fan of free markets and think that free markets are better ways to allocate capitals, uh, allocate capital than than uh, relatively small groups of people, um, I think that would be a welcome uh, a welcome change. I have a feeling that will be the case, uh, just to the extent to which. Uh, the president-elect's political capital will never be greatest as it as it is on on day one of his presidency. Uh, he'll have both houses of Congress uh, in which to affect change. I think after that, it, it's I think as President Obama found, it mm-hmm. gets hot. Once you kind of go long ball in the first couple of years of your administration, it's har- it's harder to get big things done after that. Can we bring it back? And we'll do this in the next section with Jason Trudeau. We'll bring it back to the equity markets. Are you fully invested now? I'm I'm uh, pretty fully invested. I, I have some cash uh, available, but I, I also think that I, this is not a market in which I would start fooling around on the short side, uh, because as we discussed, uh, this has been a bull market. No one's loved. Uh, you're at all time highs, and yet it's not part of the zeitgeist yeah. of the of the culture. No one's talking you know, cocktail Agreed. parties. People Agreed. are not talking about stocks. Well, uh, all their toys like Trump, 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 Clinton, Trump, 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 right, Trump, or their smartphone, or you know, you know or, yeah, real estate, right? You know, but yeah. people are not uh, talking okay. about the last stock they bought. Jason Trennett with us. Final thoughts with Strategus Research Partners. Let's go back to the equity markets. Does Graham Dodd and Cottle matter anymore? It's something you and I, I mean, you and I are the only two people that actually read the puppy. Yeah. It's like right. 800 pages. Yeah. <laughs> starts on railroad stocks in right, right. 1934 or whatever. Does all this stuff you and I learn matter anymore? Well, it hasn't. Unfortunately, it hasn't mattered a lot over the Thank last you. several <laughs> several years. And and one hopes, right, that it, it becomes more important once again. Ultimately, stock prices are a function uh, of uh, future uh, cash flows and and interest rates. Oh, really? That's, that's, that's what they, <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's what we should uh, we should be focused on. Um, I, I think part of the problem with financial repression, part of the problem with with quantitative easing, is that you've essentially enforced a certain purgatory uh, on companies in in which everyone had a low cost of capital, and, and yeah. that makes it very very difficult to outperform and, and pick stocks. And, and David, what I would point out here is it's getting long in the tooth. Mm-hmm. For us to make jokes about it is fine, but our listeners who are savers and retirees. There's nothing funny about yeah. this. Walk me through your, your asset allocation matrix as it stands uh, right now. I'm looking here at, at what you're bullish on. your mid-cap stocks. What have, what have you adjusted here going into the new year? Yeah, I think yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I, and I generally have, I would say, throughout my career, for whatever it's worth, I've had a, a general bias towards being overweight large cap mm. over small and mid. I think this this time may be a little bit uh, different because uh, small and mid-cap stocks obviously are, have more domestic content, probably have a little bit less of the risk uh, that may be associated with uh, a change in the world order, to put it kindly, uh, as far as trade uh, is concerned. Um, I also think that they're probably going to benefit the most at the margin from changes in regulatory uh, policy as well as uh, corporate taxes. Uh, a lot of large companies already have relatively low effective tax rates. Uh, they're able to use 
the three and a half million words in the U.S. tax code to get their uh, their their taxes lower. Small and mid cap companies don't have that flexibility and should benefit more, in my opinion. Uh, this year as we make some of those structural changes. And here I'm looking at your, your list here of the best and worst performers of the last quarter, the fourth quarter, uh, 2016. What stands out to me in the best category, financials and industrials, and in the worst, uh, it's healthcare. Do you expect that to persist here as we, we move into 2017? I think that seems fair. I mean, certainly, um, it, I, I'm very bullish on financials. I, I especially... And that's because of rates, or...? That's because of, I, I think, net interest margins are yeah. going to expand, and I think also, again, you're going to have a very significant change as far as the regulatory uh, regulatory uh, regime is concerned. The stocks have gone up a lot, but they're still trading probably at around book value. So, uh, in my view, there, there's quite, uh, quite a bit of room. Industrials are interesting because they're outperforming while the dollar, generally speaking, has been strengthening. Uh, that is a change. I think that's probably a bet on the fact that you're going to have uh, the U.S. may lead the global economy uh, out of uh, its doldrums and the global economy may do uh, a little bit better. Healthcare, I think the headline risk is is very significant, certainly, in the, in the next you know, three to six months. And, and we're going to see what we're going to get. Uh, certainly repealing Obamacare seems to be number one on the on the list. Uh, it will be replaced at some future date, uh, will be announced, and, and uh, that will start a whole new uh, round of lobbying and a whole new round of, uh, of uh, I guess, questions uh, about the sector and the way it's going to be structured. Good for lawyers, uh, certainly. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> and you, you like Japan right now. I'm looking at dollar yen at, uh, let's see, one sixteen fifty seven. Is it is it principally because of the weak currency that uh, Japan is attractive to you right now? It's. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are other things to, that recommend uh, Japanese yeah. equities like valuation, uh, like a low dividend payout ratio. But the, the fact that they um, – have uh, reversed course on negative interest rates, at least for the time being, by focusing on uh, uh, targeting the yield curve as opposed to inflation, I think is a very meaningful yeah. uh, meaningful change. I, I do think their experimentation with negative interest mm-hmm. rates last year was a policy error. And uh, I think the right. fact that they're moving away from that is a positive. Jason Trenet, thank you so much. Thank you. I was strategic research their chairman, and of course, is it 10 years? It's ten and a half. Yeah, ten, ten and a half. Ten I, I, I'm still like a little kid. Ten I, years I, 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 I count the half years. Yeah, Very it's good. over ten. Ten and a half yeah. years. Right. Jason, thank you so thank much. Thank you, sir. Pleased to have in studio with us now Stuart Warrior. He's a derivative strategist at BNP Paribas. Uh, out with his outlook for 2017. Always great to speak with you, Stuart. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Let's start with volatility. I'm looking at VIX right now at 12, settling around 12. We've seen this uh, degree of complacency for a few weeks now. When you're looking at volatility uh, in the year ahead, is that the indicator that you look to? How, how useful is the VIX to you? And what do you foresee with regard to volatility here in 2017? Yeah, so I think uh, a couple things are really interesting, especially when you look at the price action at the end of last year, uh, particularly the fact that we've had consecutively, I think two years in a row now, of higher realized volatility, and the market's also drifting higher. So that is in stark contrast to the QE period where we had the market drifting higher on lower volatility. So I think that trend's likely to continue in the future. And as far as the VIX is concerned, um, you know, the key driver of that that measure is uh, short-dated realized volatility. And what we've seen both in the S&P and then indices globally, if you look at you know the V2X in Europe, in um, the Euro stocks or, or the VIX in the S&P 500, it's the fact that correlation is so low, sector are diverse. Um, there's this dispersed performance, and, and that's really kind of dampening volatility in, in really either direction. You, you look at uh, financials in particular uh, in your outlook. How are they? How are U.S. financials looking to you right now? 
Yeah, so on, on the vol side, it's interesting. That quite rich, and if, especially when we look at ETFs that are linked to financials, uh, those are rich as well. And I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that whenever you have an asset that really breaks out of a historical range, uh, range trading, which financials had been in, in some time, the vol resets higher, and you, you have to kind of wait to settle into a new price range before the market really settles into into a more comfortable environment. Mm. In your research note, and folks, we need a, a math warning here. We're not going to do the legitimate math that Mr. Werther does for There are a lot of Greek about. characters. Everything's vague. Gamma, you know, blah, blah, blah. But down at the bottom of your note, you bury the headline, which is what pros like you do is try to game sector rotation. I find in the media, pundits are either clueless or glib about sector rotation. This is a great way to enjoy losing money. How do I not lose money gaming sector rotation? Uh, well, I think, you know, and I've mentioned this uh, before, is one of the key things is that you need to look at when looking at sector rotation is uh, trying to find the right variable that describes uh, the, the rotation itself. So one of the things that we look at, um, you know, a couple of things we look at are terms of trade, um, economic surprise, dollar strength, et cetera. And we try to figure out from those variables, um, you know, what that actually means and, and what's the real driver. You know, is it sector rotation itself? Is it value versus growth? Um, and I think what we've really seen over the past uh, couple of weeks or, or months, per se, is value versus growth rather than actual sector, sector rotation. So it's a matter of how you break up the S&P complex, but but I think in this con in this context, it's really the kind of cyclicals versus defensives, value versus growth. Mm -hmm. You highlight um, the, the, the big macro event of the year ahead, that being the, the elections in France. Of course, there'll be more elections and votes uh, across Europe. I wonder what, what we've learned, what you've learned from the, the string of votes we've had here in, in 2016, the, the Brexit vote, the referendum in Italy, the U.S. presidential election. What has that taught you, and how has that affected the way that you strategize your going into the election in France? So I think it's really interesting in the context, uh, especially in the volatility context, in the sense that implied tends to be uh, elevated ahead of the event. And regardless of what happens in the event itself, implied collapses thereafter, whether the, whether the event was well-hedged, whether the event was under-hedged as it was in Brexit. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen that investors have uh, paid up ahead of the event, and you know, really, regardless of the outcome, um, you know, implied has been crushed. Um, and I, I think that has to do partly with the fact that all these events are so well televised that, um, you know, and well, especially. That, yeah, I don't know. Continue, please. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Oh, and I, would, I would say with risk managers, um, you know, both on the buy side and the sell side being um, you know, more stringent than they were maybe a few years ago. Yeah. It's. You know, how do you go in the day after the event, having said I, I didn't hedge or I, I didn't buy protection right. ahead of the event? This goes to from electrical engineering the idea of slew rates, which is the rate of change of an electrical circuit. This was in the movie The Big Short, David. The idea here that your world was always gamed by having an information advantage. Just in the last six or seven years, has your information advantage shrunk? because of digital media, digital information, and of course the fact that everyone listening owns a Bloomberg terminal. No, that's actually a very good question. It's something we think about uh, pretty much yeah. on a daily basis because um, I, I would say the you know, financial media has become um, much more aware um, and you know, cognizant of some of these other indicators, looking at the VIX, looking at uh, certain implied volatility metrics. Um, and really that kind of initial high-level analysis that um, a lot of people would do is taken down one or two steps. So uh, on that basis, it, there really is less informational advantage per se, and you really have to kind of do your work. So I think it really differentiates two investor classes between those who do it and those who don't. We were talking yesterday, you and I, about um, the, the 
prospects here for a, 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 a move of overseas profits back to these uh, U.S. companies to have a sort of a holiday that would allow them to, to bring some of those profits back into the, the U.S. Walk us through how you see the, that, that playing out and what the effects would be on the, the bottom lines for, for these companies. Were they to do that? Were we to get that kind of holiday? So this is actually one of the interesting things, uh, especially from a volatility perspective. When you when you think about buybacks and the way that they're generally um, orchestrated, they're vol dampening because companies tend to buy back more stock when the stock's lower. They, t- you know, on an intraday basis and and um, buy back less when the stock's higher. So uh, on that basis, you have this this effect of the implied vol of those names are actually tend to be lower than the implied vol of other names that aren't aren't actually conducting a buyback. So from that basis, if we have a number of large caps that bring back, um, you know, say of the trillion dollars of overseas cash, they bring back between, um, you know, 200 and 500 billion of that. Um, and of, of that 60 cents in the dollar is actually spent on buybacks and special dividends, then I think that would be vol dampening and that would be positive for the market. You think that's likely to happen? I mean, do you, do you, when, when you think about how much of this could be for buybacks versus capital expenditure, you satisfied with that ratio there? So, and, and this is the the key question I think. You know, with the proposed tax reform under the Better Way Plan, if capex is expensed immediately, then you ha- you have a situation where companies will actually be incentivized to, to do more capex. And, and on that basis, so you know, in the 2004 tax repatriation holiday, you had 60 cents in the dollar actually returned to shareholders. This time around, you might see mm-hmm. 40 to 50. Stuart, thank you so much, Stuart Warther with BNP Paribas. At, uh, at retail here in the wake of the holiday season, obviously looking at uh, Macy's, as we just heard, uh, prospects there for some big layoffs at Macy's. I want to bring in now uh, John Kernan. He is with Cowan, of course, a retail uh, analyst. John, great to speak with you. Great to be on. Let's let's start with Macy's, if, if we could here. Obviously, some big headline numbers, 6,500 jobs uh, going away here. What has changed for Macy's here in the last couple of quarters, if anything, or is this the continuation of the trouble that department store chain has been seeing here for a while? Well, there's a big shift to digital and Amazon's leading that. We at Cowan, we actually forecast Amazon to be the largest apparel retailer in North America by the end of 2017. You have mall traffic declining at essentially a mid-single digit rate year on year after year since 2014, and you're seeing a big shift away from brick and mortar to digital. And Macy's is a casualty in that shift. What What are they doing to to curb that? We know about the uh, the rivalry here between Amazon and Walmart. Walmart investing heavily to the tune of billions in, in building up and changing its website. Is Macy's uh, trying to do anything to, to change its online presence? Well, I actually don't cover Macy's myself. My colleague Oliver Chen does, but everyone's trying to, sh- to move more towards digital. It's trying to shut brick-and-mortar doors. Uh, there's way too much yeah. square footage in general yeah. in North America. Uh, so you're going to continue. This is... Um, it's just the beginning of okay. you know a door closure across retail. Two quick uh, questions here in the time we got, John. It's so important. We're thrilled that you're on with us with your and Oliver Chen's uh, work. First of all, within the analysis, are we underweighting the impact of Amazon? Is this just really at the end of the day just about Amazon? That's not all about Amazon, but certainly a lot of it is, and it's a lot about the growth of the direct-to-consumer platforms of a lot of the brands that are out there, like a Nike and Under Armour. Um, as more brands expand their own online efforts, it's, it's obviously negative okay. for brick-and-mortar retail. If I go to the back of a Cowan sheet and I'm going to look at a given retail operation, revenues ain't happening, negative 2.1%, same-store sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where down the income statement do they get this fixed, or is it over on the balance sheet with real estate? 
What, what's the solution for retail America to the address? The solution is to have product that people want to buy. Yeah. Oh, no, you, you sound like Oliver Chen. <laughs> you, you've taken really the... doesn't work in the consumer okay. space. It, it, we just haven't seen it, or at least in the retail space. Um, we've seen Sears struggle to monetize their real estate. The market caps down to eight hundred million from a peak of north of wow. twenty billion, a, you know, decade ago. Um, but can, financial engineering and retail, we've yet to ever really see work. Um, so that's, you have to have product people want to you, sell. You, you go back, forget about you know closing a thousand stores, laying off x thousands of people. As an industry, they're supposed to find the mother of all products. Mm. How do you do that? Well, you have to own brands and intellectual property. That's how you do it. Um, that's those are that's who's winning now. Whether it's the Nikes, the Under Armors, or the other you know the the brands that are out there, but the brick and mortar. Sure. Retail community continues to struggle. John, help us understand here how retailers are looking ahead to Donald Trump's policies. We talk a lot about the effect of, uh, of those potential policies on the economy writ large. But when it comes to retailers, what are they most concerned about? What could make the biggest difference for them here going forward? Yeah, it's funny. This year, I think usually it's fashion trends, consumer trends that drive stock price performance in retail and consumer discretionary. But changes in Washington policy, those potential changes – have enormous implications for retail and the consumer discretionary space. If border tax adjustments are put through indiscriminately and you're just taxing imported goods from China and the Far East, it will have major negative implications for everybody in this group, and you can start slashing your earnings estimates pretty much indiscriminately. Is immigration a big issue? Is that something that uh, is it all on the, the horizon here for retailers? Uh, people are thinking about it, but there's there's other issues like the border adjustments that I think people should be worried about. I think the other issue people should be w- very worried about, at least the retail management teams, is that you're in an absolutely booming consumer macro environment. 2016 saw an acceleration in wages. It saw an acceleration in consumer spending. You're seeing a lot of really bad numbers from a lot of retailers. So what actually happens when the cycle does inevitably roll over? Things are going to get really ugly in retail. John Gurdon, thank you very much for joining us here again. Uh, a lot of big news. That's the gloomiest. So, that's, well, you know, that's gloomier than Howard Davidovich. Holidays are over. Yeah, wow. It's gloomier than Howard Davidovich. That's difficult. I must say yeah. I enjoyed Howard's commentary earlier. Uh, anyway, John Kernan there with, uh, with Count & Company joining us on yeah. all the retail news we've gotten here the last 24 hours. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I want to bring in Drew Mattis now. He's Deputy Chief U.S. Economist at UBS. Drew, thanks very much for being with us. I know you're processing the the, uh, unemployment numbers we got this morning, so we'll give you time to do that. Let me start by asking you about uh, what we learned from the Federal Reserve yesterday. We've been talking about the role of these uh, minutes from that meeting at which the Fed did decide to, to raise rates. What was unclear to you going into getting those minutes yesterday, and what did you learn when they came out at 2 o'clock? 
Well, I mean, I, I think what people were, were mainly concerned about was why there were three rate hikes all of a sudden, um, and there had been two. Uh, and I think the minutes, you know, what the minutes suggested was that that wasn't some sort of error, that that was, in fact, what they meant to do, uh, or that it was consistent with what, what how they were thinking of the world. Uh, you know, our view is that there'll still be two rate hikes next year. Uh, they, they've talked a, a, a pretty aggressive rate hike schedule pretty much every year, uh, and they haven't been able to get it done. Um, and, you know, we can debate why, why they haven't been able to get it done, but I, I think it's because they tend to focus more on financial conditions than they have in the past. Um, and that that creates a circularity in, in kind of the, the whole structure, which, which really prevents them from moving that much more aggressively. Circularity, uh, uncertainty, the, the Fed acknowledging that that uh, exists and that it's a complicating factor. How complicating is it for you here as you come up with your growth forecast, as you try to forecast uh, what you think is going to happen here in 2017? Uh, I've tried to make it simple on myself. Uh, and so I've only done the work on things that have been kind of fully fleshed out. Uh, you're you're and, in a vacuum. Well, I, you know, the, the, the problem is there's, there's a lot of numbers out there, uh, but there's not a lot of detail behind uh, some of the numbers. And, you know, I, I think until we get more clarity on some, on some of the proposals that, you know, the, the more cautious approach is probably the, more, the one that's best warranted. I mean, I, we have penciled in uh, some acceleration growth uh, from uh, Trump, uh, from some of his policies uh, for next year, and, and we have um, – uh, we've penciled in a little more uh, in 2018 um, from his policies. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we have an economy operating towards full capacity. The unemployment rate is pretty much as low as you, anyone probably wants to see it get. Um, and, you know, the inflation numbers are moving back up towards the Fed's target zone. So it's pretty, you know, for us, it's hard to argue that we're far away from some sort of, you know, yeah. natural state in the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that means any sort of further stimulus just doesn't have the same uh, bang for its buck. Drew, what's the 12 months forward GDP view of UBS? Uh, We are just below 2.5%, so about 100 basis points of acceleration versus this year. You are optimistic compared to many we speak to who are sub 2.5%. What is the requirement to attain your optimism or to exceed it? Is it just about investment? You know, to be honest with you, Tom, it, it doesn't take a lot. Our 100 basis point acceleration is pretty much we don't have a repeat in uh, energy price movements that could generate the same kind of CapEx decline, which doesn't seem like it's likely that we could make that happen even if we wanted to. Um, and uh, that we, uh, you know, we don't, you know, effectively it's just that, that we don't repeat the bad news twice. Uh, you know, so that acceleration in growth has nothing to do with anything getting better. It has th- things to do. It has everything to do with two things: uh, inventory, uh, inventory movements, and capex, not repeating what were completely unusual years. Uh, and so, you know, when I look at the fact that you know we are above consensus, I kind of wonder what uh, implicitly people are assuming on the consensus uh, about the future that. You know, that they are confident enough about that they can put it into their forecast. I, I think a lot of the consensus is, let's put it this way, a lot of the consensus is penciling in something bad happening, but they wouldn't be able to define what that something bad is. And I think that that's a dangerous mm-hmm. way to forecast. Mm-hmm. When you look at, <laughs> let, me, let me play off of that a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's unclear what the something bad may be, but I mean, we have, some, we have some possibilities here. Trade is certainly a big one. I mean, that must be a huge weight on you as you're forecasting. Well, except for the fact that, you know, we don't really know 
uh, what's going to happen there. We don't know how much of this, um, you know, how much is talk and how much is going to be action. Well, we're seeing uh, contours this week, though, aren't we, with GM and Ford and, and the rest? Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, I, I'm hesitant to, to basically say that voluntary actions by, by firms are mm-hmm. or should be thought of in one direction or the other. I mean, that's, that's not policy. That's, that's firms responding in, in ways that they think are best. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd hesitate to comment on anything that they're doing individually, but I would say that, you know, until we see uh, a tariff or until we see uh, something concrete, um, that, you know, I, I think it's, you know, first of all, I mean, this could take six months. It could take a year. You know, you don't know the time frame for getting, for, no. for making some of these things True. happening. Let's talk about uh, employment here as we look ahead to Jobs Day uh, tomorrow. What are you going to be looking for here? We were talking with Danny Blanchflower, as Tom said a few moments ago, about part-timeism, about uh, wage growth. Uh, what's going to attract your, your attention tomorrow when those numbers come out? Well, I'll be blunt. I'm not going to worry too much about part-time employment because part-time employment isn't particularly elevated right now. Um, so I'm going to be just looking at the, at the overall jobs numbers. Uh, I'm going to be focusing probably more on the household surveys so the unemployment rate. Uh, I want to see what's going on there with participation um, and with the employment-to-population ratio. Uh, I think we are in a stage in the labor market where we should be seeing lower levels of payroll growth. Uh, because we're running out of the easy people to hire. Uh, and so now in order to hire someone, you have to look a little harder. Uh, and we see that uh, that's consistent with the job openings number, the quits ratio, um, and kind of the amount of time it takes to fill a position. All of, you know, the, in particular, that last one has been lengthening mm. quite substantially. We saw that uh, sort of precipitous drop last month for the month before. Uh, and I wonder what you think that portends for, for this month going forward here. We're at 4.6 now, surveys 4.6. Seven uh, percent. Do you think we'll see an uptick here? Well, it's funny because uh, you know when you um, you know are, you know my guess is that it'll stay where it's at. Uh, one of the interesting risks, though, is that usually or not usually, but you know it's not inconceivable when you see a drop like that that that's the start of a a faster pace of decline. Uh, and if you look back historically speaking, when you see big drops in the unemployment rate, uh, oftentimes what economists will do will, will be the pencil and a rebound to kind of normalize it back to some sort of trend they had in the back of their mind. Uh, historically speaking, though, you're just as likely to see a, a further decline or, or an acceleration on, on the process, and that that is just the first step, if you want to call it the dam breaking, um, for a, a more rapid decline in the unemployment rate. So. Uh, we are anticipating an unchanged unemployment rate, which which means that we're saying it's it's neither the dam breaking nor is it some sort of uh, false reading. Um, but if it were to drop further, uh, that would be something that would be, that would make us really have to question like how much further the Fed can watch sure. that thing drop mm-hmm. before they have to get serious about potentially moving more quickly. Can I read into your prescription then that you think we're at, we're at full unemployment then? If if you think we're going to stay where we are. Uh, to be honest with you, I think we're probably below full employment. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you know we have the people in the labor force. Um, we have uh, we we don't have enough. What's been going on in the labor force is we, we have this nice steady pace of job growth, uh, but that's been happening because we've had fewer layoffs and fewer hire, less hiring. So the dynamics of the labor force are actually pretty low right now, uh, even though the labor market itself looks pretty healthy. So the net numbers look good, but the gross numbers look bad.
Uh, and what I would like to see is a little more job switching. I'd like to see uh, a few yeah. more people getting fired and a few more people getting hired, uh, because that's a more dynamic market. That's one that's better for everyone. How do you respond to the wonderful aggregate analysis you've just given us versus the partitioning of the American labor force into those employable, those on the margin that want to be employable, all the analysis you do every day? and a huge body of Americans that aren't part of the discussion. Do you fold that in? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to separate it out when you're trying. I mean, we're trying to predict policy, right? And, and so um, certainly, you know, I mean, from a philosophical perspective, what you want is a labor market where everyone can find work if they're willing to work. Uh, and that's that's the idea of full employment, right? That you that you've reached a frictional level of unemployment, and then there's some yeah. people who you know are temporarily unemployed because they need to be for whatever reason, um, and the rest of everyone who wants to work can work, uh, and and that's the that's you know probably you know ideal is probably the okay. wrong way of putting I'll, it. But, but I'll go I'll go with what you just said, Drew. But are we getting the jobs if we want to work that we want, or as David Blanchflower said yesterday? Is it about getting marginally more hours of work and we can't get that? I mean, have we become almost too labor efficient? Hmm. Well, the, the problem is, is that's been encouraged, right? So we have policies in place that have defined full work weeks as being below 30 hours. Uh, or being 30 hours, uh, which is a, a, a sharp change from kind of historical norms. Uh, and that has probably led to a bifurcation of labor force uh, between skilled and unskilled labor, because why would any firm pay for the 30th hour of work in an unskilled environment when that 30th hour of work has a marginal cost that's significant? Uh, so giving someone that 30th hour of work is no longer paying them the extra 10 to $15 an hour, it's paying them the $15 an hour and a whole range of, of mandated benefits. Um, and so because we put a break point in, we've created an artificial um, stress in the system that encourages firms to think in terms of not giving anyone 30 hours unless you can justify it from a skills perspective. Let me ask you just to, 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 to pivot here a little bit uh, here at the beginning of 2017 after the holiday season. How's the consumer looking to you uh, in the U.S. right now? I mean, I think the consumer looks good. Uh, you know, when I said uh, – when I was talking about the, the, the gross flows into and out of the labor force, you know, and we saw it in claims today, no one's being fired. Uh, there are very low levels of layoffs in the economy relative to the population size. Um, there are decent wage gains. They're not they're not incredibly great, but they're decent uh, given that environment. Um, and uh, you have a, a expanding access to credit for consumers. Um, you add all that up, and you have a very steady consumption. Uh, profile going forward, and that's one of the reasons why our growth forecast accelerates, is because we do have that steady uh, consumer built into our outlook. Uh, that just seems to be the most basic case, and of course, with the consumer being 70% of the economy, um, that provides you with a nice forward momentum into the into 2017. Thank you so much, Dramatis, UBS. Greatly appreciate it here.
pleasure to be joined now by Mark Kiesel. Uh, he's the CIO for Global Credit at PIMCO, joining us uh, from Newport Beach, uh, California, out with a new note, Navigating Change, Opportunities in Quality Credit, Specialty Finance, uh, and Mortgages. Uh, great to speak with you, Mark. Hi, David. Good morning. Let's start with your appetite for credit, how it's changed here uh, in the new year. And I'm, I'm wondering if your appetite for quality credit uh, has changed in particular. Well, David, a year ago, we were quite optimistic on credit. Um, high yield in 2016 was the strongest performing market up 15, 16%. So a year ago, when energy prices were hitting the lows, we were buying aggressively high yield. Now we're de-risking. We basically think on, under Trump, the market faces a lot more two-way risks. There's positive scenarios under Trump with tax mm. reform and confidence picking up, but yeah. also there's negatives. So we have been de-risking. We think a lot of good news okay. is priced in. Folks, de-risking is sort of like in the airline business when you deplane. <laughs> what the hell is de-risking, Mark? <laughs> so, Tom, what we've been doing is we have been selling into strength. Um, energy markets have Thank basically you. gone from 26 on oil to 52. Uh, right. We've been selling into that strength, and we've been upgrading yeah. the overall quality of our portfolios. Mark, Mark, I, I'm, Mark knows I'm busting his chops, folks, because there's a general <laughs> counsel uh, at Ogre, Ogre, and Miserable out in Newport Beach, California, saying, don't say we sell bonds. But, <laughs> but Mark's a good sport about it. Now, let me de-risk over to David Cora. <laughs> When you look at that, at the reasons for de-risking, as you put it, what are the major ones? Is it is it the the prospect for more political risk here in the new year? Is it is it central bank policy? What's the driving force there behind you doing that? So, David, just just on bonds alone, if you go pre-election, we were really globally hitting limits of global QE. There were trends in place already for higher rates even before Trump. The global economy was gradually healing from very depressed levels. We have rising global PMI data, PPI data. OPEC deal, to me, was a big game changer. That That is the return of the cartel. You're seeing earnings bottom. And then you have Trump surprised with the win. Now you've got animal spirits kicking in. You've got business confidence improving, consumer confidence improving. And you've got the prospect for the first time in eight years of a very pro-business, pro-growth mm -hmm. initiatives going through. So to me, I think you want to be more defensive. Mm. The trend towards higher rates, I think, is ha yeah. had been in place even before Trump. Trump just accelerates that trend. But critically, and I, I mean this seriously, Mark, do you have in your head a tip point on 10-year yield which signals the Trump reflation? I know it's not 2.41%, but is there a number where you say, hey, this is for real? Well, we have been uh, basically starting to add a little bit of bonds here because we have seen the 10-year back up 100 basis points. But I think a lot of this has to do with the Fed and will the Fed shift more hawkish or more dovish over time? In my mind, they're going to likely shift more hawkish. And that was clear yesterday in the minutes. The, they clearly highlighted that the risks of growth surpassing their forecasts have grown because there is this possibility of expansionary fiscal policy. This is happening, by the way, Tom, at the at a time when the labor market's already tight. So mm -hmm. the, there's this right tail risk out there of inflation, I think, potentially surprising the Fed. And also, they even mentioned in the the minutes yesterday that that, that has implications for the reinvestment of, of treasuries and mortgages. So I think the market right now, what's priced in is two hikes this year and only two hikes next year. So you've only got 100 basis points of hikes over the next two yeah. years. In my mind, I think the risks are that they could go faster. Are you going to cash? What role is cash playing in your portfolio right now? 
Well, what we want to do is what 2016 proved is the bond managers who outperformed most were flexible, nimble, and they capitalized on the key moments throughout the year, whether it was the energy crisis, Brexit, or Trump. What we want to do now is we want to take profits, build up a significant cash position, and hang out in what we call the best risk-reward investments in global fixed income. That would be tips because basically we want this, this inflation protection. We're upgrading quality in corporate bonds, favoring the consumer, banks, financials, and pipelines. And importantly, non-agency mortgages and agency mortgages have cheapened considerably and offer a very good risk reward right now. So these higher quality bonds within global fixed income actually are the best place to be right now on a risk-adjusted basis. David Gurr and Tom Keen, we're with Mark Kiesel of PIMCO. Mark, uh, you know that it's a migration of yield and inflation. Which comes first and what's it mean for the return, the inflation-adjusted return that our listeners will get? Do yields move higher and then inflation catches up or do we risk yields moving up but inflation moving up faster? That's not good, is it? No, Tom, that's not. And I think you just highlighted, you know, the reason why we have been selling into strength and de-risking. A main risk for the U.S. economy is that we could get a pickup in, of inflation as a result of higher wages. This labor market's very tight. You've got rising confidence, animal spirits. And this new fiscal policy, we don't know really what's going to unfold here, but it could be quite inflationary. Uh, so you, the important point is that U.S. fiscal stimulus normally works best coming out of recessions. This economic expansion is eight years in the making, and it's coming at a time when the labor market's already tight. And that's why the inflation risk is higher today. Are you uh, writing the obituary for globalization now in light of what we've seen, what we are seeing here when it comes to trade, when it comes to this incoming administration's policy uh, toward China, toward Mexico? Uh, are, are you worried that we are going to see a less globalized world? We are worried. And in fact, you know, part of uh, PIMCO's secular thinking has been that the rise of populism is is creates this inflationary risk tail. Uh, there has been a shift even before the U.S. election away from monetary policy. There are limits of global QE. We're shifting gradually towards fiscal. Uh, Trump, yeah. you know, could be more reasonable than the market's fear. At the same time, his legislative agenda could get diluted. As you know, Washington is very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. There are implementation risks with a lot of his policies. So I think the big point here is that this is a market that can go either way. It can yeah. go positive or it can go negative. Okay, we got Alicia Manel on tomorrow. Folks, I can't begin to describe the excellence of her shop at Boston College and their effort on America's retirement planning. And I say this with great respect, Mark, for PIMCO, with your terrific retirement coverage uh, there. Help me here with Markowitz, the efficient market frontier of where your bonds fit in. I mean, if I got equities, I got bonds, I got cash. And there's that parabola, that sideways parabola of most efficient, optimal places how can that work given the great distortions we're in right now? So, Tom, I think the importance of bonds is that if you look all over the developed markets, all over the world, the populations are aging. Uh, no more in the world is this more apparent than in, in Japan, in Europe, and, and will become a big issue in the United States. People are going to need income to retire. Bonds provide stability of income 
and there's not enough income producing assets in the world relative to the demand for those assets. So equities are going to do well in a growth spurt. But with Trump, you've got this negative scenario of trade restrictions, of uh, deterioration in geopolitical. Bonds will protect investors from downside risk in equities. That's the key to bonds is because, yes, there is upside with Trump and that could mean equities do well. But at the same time, Trump has a lot of bad risks. Uh, that that the market, I think, is not focused on. And in that environment where where the negatives of Trump resurface, bonds will then protect uh, investors by providing high quality income and protect protect from downside if, if the economy slows. Give us the, the Mark Kiesel outlook, the PIMCO outlook on European corporate credit. We've been following the, the back and forth, the, the <laughs> chapter after chapter of the Monte de Paschi situation in Italy. What's your attitude toward European corporate credit right now? So... Again, similar to what we were talking about earlier, we have been selling into strength. So basically, credit spreads are at two-year tights right now. There's a lot of good news priced into the market. That's true not only of Europe, but but in the United States as well. Uh, within Europe right now, Europe is growing at a slower pace. There's more economic upside risk in the United States. Uh, with Europe, we want to stay in very high-quality sectors. Um, we have been focused on cable. We have been focused on the consumer there because we are seeing a modest improvement in the economic data. And banks really, banks are really a pure play on economic growth. As gr- growth gradually heals through Europe, banks should do well. They're going to benefit from steeper yield curves, higher rates, and in the U.S., less regulation. So, so banks are a favorite of ours in Europe and also in the United States. How about that U.S.-China relationship? We haven't talked about China yet. We mentioned at the top of the program the, the, the stress test the Chinese government has been doing on the, the U.N. What's your outlook for China in this uh, year ahead? Uh, are we going to see a repeat of what we saw last year in 2016 with the, the issues with its currency, do you think? So fascinating, uh, David, because that was the first two weeks of 2016, and the market's focused on it again. China over the last two days has been intervening. We've seen the currency strengthen. The key has been the capital outflow data. Um, As the U.S. outlook improves and China is slowing from a higher growth level, but albeit slowing, capital is moving into the United States and out of China. Also, their property market, you know, is pretty overheated in some of these tier one cities. And so there's a lot of capital that is looking to get out of China into the United States, seeking higher, higher potential returns. And that's creating a huge dilemma for China. They've had to now put in limits on this $50,000 limit for for capital outflows. Mark, thank you so much for the briefing. Mark Kiesel with PIMCO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.